0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM
1: 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio studio looking out on the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a glorious mid-May morning up here. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddy Eric Bradlow. Presently, we will eventually be joined by Audie Weiner, the third of the four collaborators on the show. Shane Jensen's away this week. He'll be back soon. You can join the conversation, one wharton That's one 942 7866 We're going to be here for the next two hours, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. We're here every Wednesday morning. At least some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10, talking sports analytics. If you don't want to call, you can also email us. You can email us, businessradio at siriusxm.com, businessradio at siriusxm.com. Matt picks those things up during the show. We have answered email live, real time in the show, but it's also a great way to reach us if you're listening one of the five times we're replayed. Over the course of the next week, you can follow us on social media. Now we're off the ground in the land of Twitter at W Moneyball at W Moneyball. We tweet about the show there. We follow our guests there. Periodically, we throw horse betting advice out there. Who knows what else might come? Anyway, that's uh, Twitter. The handle again is at W Moneyball, Eric Bradlow, good morning to you. Good morning, Cade. I did
2: some tweeting last night from at Wharton Moneyball did about you? the NBA draft lottery.
1: All right. Well, that was a fun event. Uh, the intersection of sports and probability, explicitly probability on the table. So much fun.
2: Well, of course, the thing that, you know, after the event was, well, first let me talk about the event just briefly for all of our listeners out there. So the part from a Philadelphia Sixer fan that got exciting last night is we had all kinds of possibilities in the draft. So the Sixers had their own pick. The Sixers had the ability to swap picks with the Sacramento Kings if the Kings got higher than the Sixers, and then we also had the Lakers pick if it fell outside of the top three. So what happened was they count down 14, 13, they tell the teams. Now, the key position for the Sixers was number eight, because that's where the Sacramento Kings would have picked if everything had gone to order. So when eight was announced, and it was not the Sacramento Kings, everybody in my household, like, this was like the Super Bowl, this was like winning the Super Bowl. Because all of a sudden that means that the Kings have moved into the top three because that's the way it works, and it means the Sixers get to swap with them. Why did
1: it mean the Kings, if weren't in the
2: top eight? I'll tell you why. Because the way the draft lottery works is the lottery only applies to the top three picks, then they do inverse order of record from four to fourteen. Ah, And so since the Kings weren't the, they were the eighth worst team. If they're not in their yeah, designated yeah, sure. slot, yeah, they yeah, have to be right. in the top three. So the minute their name wasn't announced, they're in the top three, and since the Sixers get to swap with them, the Sixers were in the top can, three. Can we
1: talk about that institution real quickly? So that's a change at some point, because what they're doing is they don't want there to be that big a deviation for Well, they allow a lot of deviation, but not for that many teams.
2: That's correct.
1: So, so they'll r- allow huge deviations for up to three teams, though they're all probabilistic. I get it. But after three teams, people are going to be slotted according to... Well, you think about... Yeah, that's you interesting. Think,
2: right No, no. It's actually, I actually like it a lot because let's say you're the worst team in the NBA. It's it's kind of what we talk about. You can't on be worse the, than fourth. Exactly. So on the one hand, you don't want to incentivize teams to lose... And by losing, by the way, unlike the NFL, where if you lose and you have the worst record, you will get the number one pick. In the NBA, that's not true. All yeah. you're guaranteeing yourself is no worse than fourth. I like the mathematical balance between let's do nothing to protect the worst team right. and let's do everything to protect yeah. the worst team. Yeah. And I think, I don't know but that they've, third's they've, the right place, but, but they, it's but not they've, bad.
1: They've, they've tweaked it over time. Um, clearly. They continue to try to refine it. Well, what
2: they've also tweaked is the number of balls that, if you'd like, that go into the lottery, the ping-pong balls that go in for the top team, second team. In other words, how flat do you want to make that distribution? How steep? It turns out that the worst team has a 25% chance of getting the number one pick. That's how many ping-pong balls or combinations lead to them. Then it goes down to about 16%, 11%. But it's not like, I mean, there's only about a 50% chance that the, one of the worst three teams end up with the number 1 pick. So there's a lot of mass yeah. still remaining. So Do you they know make it pretty flat
1: or steeper than it used to be. It's, they, flattened it. It. They, they flattened, flattened it. They flattened
2: it. In other words, it used to be more t- they used to give more benefit to the, to the, worst, to the worst worst yes. teams and they
1: flattened it out. Is it harder or easier to find that ball that they put in the freezer before the the well dream.
2: that's a good question about that so that <laughs> yeah you know, that's always been i mean people had there's all these conspiracy theories because everyone knew there's no way they're it was not gonna envelope, have lonzo right? it was ball an, it was go to the lakers but let so me just we're, say we're talking
1: about the patrick ewing Pat, new york knicks draft right
2: uh, what, that one was not <laughs> fixed that one was absolutely honest and was abs- as, as people know i'm from <laughs> yeah. new york i'm a knicks fan growing up um but here's the point that's interesting from a statistical perspective so the sixers once the Sacramento Kings weren't in, the, in their normal slot, it turned out the Sixers couldn't have done worse than they did, which means what they ended up with was only the third pick. That's what the Sixers ended up with. Now, why does that they couldn't have done worse? Well, they would have gotten the Lakers pick, if the Lakers hadn't been in the top three. Well, the Lakers were in the top three, so that's bad for the Sixers. Secondly, I already just told you they had to get at least the top three, but they only got exactly the third pick. So once that happened, the worst possible scenario for the Sixers was only the third pick. Now, I actually looked at a simulation. Hold on
1: real quickly. The other thing was this switch, and they only gained two spots there. They did.
2: So, So they ended up in the deal that got them Nick Stauskas, On the Sixers, they had a. It was a very clever trade by Sam Hinkie. They had the right to switch picks with the Sacramento Kings. Had they not had that deal in there, the Sixers would be drafting fifth because that's where their ping pong balls ended up. Where the Kings would have been third.
1: Had they been, what record did they have in the league? If they had been, according to their record or probability, fourth.
2: The Sixers were the fourth worst team in the NBA.
1: So, So, so they were. They, were, they could have been two slots worse. They could have been done to seventh.
2: That's correct. Okay. And let me just say, by the way, so I've. I have for our fans here, the natural question to ask is, so how did they do? So actually, I've got in front of me the probabilities of all possible outcomes the Sixers could have ended up with in the draft, and then I added up the probabilities of ones that are objectively better? Like, for example, do we both agree that getting the first pick would have been better? Yes. (laughs) Do we agree that the second pick would have been better? Yes. Do we agree that they could have had two picks? So, like, one and four, one and five? Those are obviously all better. Now, the debate comes, now, I think I know the Massey-Peabody system's going to say, would you say that four and five is better than three? Four and five? Yeah. Sure. Uh, Okay. How about four and seven?
1: Yeah, it's harder. But but you would
2: agree four and five? Sure. Okay. If you It's a key point. If you add four and five into the weight of better, fifty-three percent of the mass was better than the Sixers ended up. Forty-seven percent equal or worse. So no, 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 they they did about fair. They did about fair. If you don't include four and five. 39% Thirty nine percent better, sixty one percent worse. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. they did about average. They yeah. didn't get screwed, is the technical term. They didn't right. get screwed in the draft. They did about average based we, we, on we probabilities. We have to remember
1: they they have an unprotected LA Lakers pick next year. Now they do. Now the Lakers will be better presumably, and so maybe maybe they maybe. won't be in the lottery. Maybe they will still be in the lottery. They're not a good team. But and that- we
2: also, thanks to Sam Hinkie, we have the unprotected Sacramento Kings pick in 2019. So we have two picks next year and two picks the year after. Our pick and the Lakers and then our pick and the Kings. Wow. And let me just wow. say, by the way, remember, wow. we've had the number one pick in the draft last year who didn't play. But Ben Simmons, most people say, is better than anybody in this year's draft. Joel Embiid should have been, may end up being the rookie of the year. Dario Saric, who's the other guy who's possibly going to be Rookie of the Year. Okafor, most people say is a bust, but he was the number three pick in the draft. The Sixers are pretty loaded with talent at this point. Are they going
1: to bring Sam back in like 2021 when they When they they need to restock again? No, I mean to like celebrate him.
2: Either way, it was just interesting to me to look at a probabilistic assessment of how well did we do. And we did about average. Uh-huh. We did about average in the draft.
1: Okay, so who were did, I'm sure you didn't run the simulation for all the teams, but d- clearly the Celtics did well, well here. They could
2: not have done worse. How, th- where were they slotted? 1. Because they let were, me just say, oh, because the they one, had
1: the they had the Brooklyn pick.
2: Yeah. And next years the worst trade in the history <laughs> of the NBA, from the Nets' point of view, is when they got a from washed up. Point, I mean, if you're going to say something Nets, like that, it means the yeah, yeah, yeah. when they when they got a washed up Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and I forget who the third Terry. Pl- uh, Jason Terry. Thank you. Um, they got those players. They basically got four first round draft picks. It's extraordinary, and it's extraordinary.
1: And they and they were picks from a team that wasn't going to have a good record well and you so, didn't know that i mean you, at that you,
2: point the nets that, were a that's
1: potential true. contender <laughs> were they some kind of bet on the quality of the management they were shorting the management because you value of those picks, you value those picks more highly if you don't believe in the management and if the, man, the management is demonstrating the reason you shouldn't believe in them by making the trade
2: either way the celtics couldn't have done uh, worse or, or better um, the lakers you know They were about to give up their pick. If they're not in the top three, the Sixers get their pick. So they ended up second, which... They're phenomenally happy, and we just talked about the Sixers are about average. Yeah, the Phoenix Suns got bumped down; they should have been in the top three. They got bumped down a little bit. Phoenix
1: has never had the number one pick in the draft.
2: They have never had the number one pick. Well, that's
1: also with the Celtics. I mean, we tend to focus on these things one year at a time, and apparently, the Celtics have had lots of years where they had reasonable chances at the top pick and never have. have at least they haven't had it since? By the way,
2: for our trivia fans out here on one eight four four Wharton. the last time a team that made the conference finals, or better, had the number one pick, the Lakers in 1982, they drafted this guy. He ended up pretty good. His name was James
1: Worthy. Exactly. I remember those early, like, the teams before that, they already were really good. They had Magic and Kareem. And then correct. they added James Worthy out of UNC, is that right? That is correct. And it's like Same as Lord. Michael
2: Jordan. He was a senior when Michael Jordan, they played together on that national championship team. Okay. So that was... Uh, Quite a, And Sam Perkins, so, by the way. You want to talk about a great NBA, yeah. you want to talk about a team, I don't even remember exactly who the other guards were, but they weren't bad. You've heard of them. But, I mean, Sam Perkins, James Worthy, and Michael Jordan, not bad for Dean yeah, Smith.
1: Yeah, yeah, they've had some decent players down there. Uh, what, 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 what are they going to do with the pick? So the top two players apparently are both Guards.
2: Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Kay. And by the way, just so our fans out there, this wasn't a setup. Matter of fact, Kay and I are forbidden <laughs> to talk about this content before we get on the air. We don't air. set
1: up the first half hour. The we first really hour don't. Just rolls.
2: So the reason I was thinking about this is because I've done a lot of research, my own research lately, on what are called arm bandit problems. And let me say to our listeners why that relates to the question that Kay just asked. So what an arm bandit says is, let's imagine you have two slot machines. And you know, let's say, the one on the left is paying pretty well, but you don't know much about the one on the right. But the one on the right could be better. Why don't you always pull the one on the left? Well, the one on the right could be better. Now, why does this relate to the Celtics? And it's called an arm bandit problem. They have slot machines. Now, why why does this relate to the Celtics? Well, the Celtics have the number one pick. There's been discussion that they could trade that pick for a Paul George or a Jimmy Butler. So that's the certain arm. Now you've got the uncertain arm, which is the number one pick. Now, we all agree, you've studied this in football. There's lots of uncertainty, even in the number one pick in the NBA draft. Greg Oden was the number one pick. Anthony Bennett was the number one pick. There's lots of play- Andrea Bargnani was the number one pick. Um, there's lots of players that aren't that great that have been number one picks. So if you're the Celtics, do you take the high-variance pick, but could be higher mean than a Jimmy Butler or a Paul George, or do you trade the number one pick? That's exactly the discussion on the statistics blogs that have been around, and I framed it as an bandit problem. Do you take the certainty equivalent? Mm-hmm. You I hate to say it, but Jimmy Butler, Paul George aren't getting better. They're not getting worse necessarily. They're not old, but someone could be the next LeBron James. They could mm-hmm. be the next Michael Jordan, and maybe it's Markel Fultz. Maybe it's Lonzo Ball what do you do that's why it's an interesting statistical discussion of uncertainty
1: so one of the things that depends on is how the the shape of your utility function and quality of player so presumably it's pretty convex that the utility for the great players the truly great players is more than just you know, a linear step up from the good players.
2: Yeah, just for our listeners that want to think about it this way, think about a concave function as being like the letter R, so there's diminishing marginal returns as it gets higher and higher. Think of a convex function as being like the letter J, where as you get better and better, there's increasing returns to scale. And so that's the discussion that's been had. It's exactly about your utility function. You must have superstars to win in the NBA. And most people look at the Celtics right now and say, they got a bunch of... The good players, Al Horford and Isaiah Thomas, but no superstars. And that's why a lot of people think they'll keep the draft pick because Paul George and Jimmy Butler, you add them, they're still not beating the Cavaliers in the East. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are saying their loss function isn't about getting better. They've got to get better than the Cavs. And the only way to do that is to take possibly risk that gives them lower expectation, but possibly higher variance. And in this case, you have to play to high variance. Because I hate to put this away, with almost certainty, you add Paul George to the Celtics right now, they're still not beating the Cavs. So why do it?
1: Well, the Cavs aren't going to be the Cavs forever, one. Okay, but, but, but there's three but there's, more years. There's, 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 th- there's also going to be some other team that's really good. in general. Maybe in, the Sixers. In, that's right. In, in, in a star-based organization or star-based industry, you want variance in your hiring. You want variance.
2: Yeah, but do you see how – this is why I love Wharton Moneyball, not just because I get to spend two hours with UK, my friend, for the last 20-plus years, but also for all the other reasons. Think about what we've just talked about from a statistics point of view. We've talked about uncertainty. We've talked about arm bandit problems. We've talked about loss functions. We've talked about convexity. But let's listen to our listeners. We're talking about sports here. That's the beauty of Wharton Moneyball. Everything we've talked about can be thought of from a statistical perspective.
1: So uh, what are they going to do relative to Isaiah Thomas? I mean, the, do you want another guard if you've already got him? I don't know how he plays off the ball. I don't know enough about him, his game to know how he plays off the ball.
2: Yeah, so there's two thoughts, uh, schools of thoughts about him. First of all, next year's this, his last year on his, let's call him, when he wasn't superstar contract. Uh, he gets $6.2 million next year, which we both agree is a big bargain for this guy. <laughs> Sure, but the rumors—not the rumors—are he's going to want a max deal now. What's that going to be under the new CBA? That's going to be two hundred million dollars. Are you going to play? How many years? It'd probably be six years. It's going to be over thirty million all a that, year. Is that
1: all guaranteed?
2: It is in the NBA. Oh it's God. all guaranteed money. And so, are you going to pay a five foot nine guard who could very well get injured? I mean, and also, you know, as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, always said, "You can't teach height." So when he's <laughs> no, no. If he's 27 28 now, are you telling me he's going to be as fast as he is at age 33? He's 5 foot 9. So Kareem's still going to be 72 at age 33. It mm-hmm. was 72 at age 40.
1: Mm-hmm. He's so not- Greg Oden is too though.
2: Well, way. Greg Oden is too, but I'm just saying, you know so, you have to know something fair, about fair the degrading curves. A, that
1: just shows you how brutal sports is. That you're thinking about already getting out from under Isaiah Thomas and the limits no, 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 Isaiah what, Thomas. No, no, just saying yeah. this is the this is the nature of it. This is why Bill Belichick has kept the Pats at the top of the NFL for all these years. He's not sentimental about his players. He, he, he Richard has...
2: Seymour, all the guys he got rid of, Tyler, all the guys he got rid of where they were, I hate to put it this way, still extremely good players, but no longer on the rise. Yeah. And he could see trade value for yeah. all of them. But yeah. the, the, that's the thought about Isaiah Thomas is, and this is kind of the way the decision making's done. Most people say if you're, if you're going to build around Isaiah Thomas, you keep Isaiah Thomas and you keep the draft pick.
1: So this is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation one eight four four wharton That's one 942 7866 Right now it's Cade and Eric. Audie will be joining us shortly talking about the NBA draft. Eric, where did you end the season as a Sixers fan? So you have, you have season tickets. They yep. definitely took a step up this year. Um, They still have Simmons. Are we sure about his recovery from this injury? Where is the fan base on the Sixers right now?
2: Oh, I think the fan base is extremely excited. I think Joel Embiid was the Sixers representative at the draft last night, by the way. And I think he was accurate when he said if he hadn't gotten injured during the season, I think... They could have squeaked into the playoffs. I mean, they were almost a playoff-quality team. Okay,
1: but Eric, as, a, as an observer, I worry about Embiid's injury. I mean, is it, is, can we just say if he hadn't got injured? He's been injured before. He's a big I, guy. He may be prone to injury.
2: That's There's lots of things. And then Simmons got injured as well. But I think people are very—I think here's what people feel good about. Most people feel, if healthy, Joel Embiid is by far the best player of his cohort— Simmons was the highest-graded player in the last 10 years coming out of, you know, play of you know in the draft. He was the highest-graded player since, really, the two, since LeBron. I mean, based on his skill set, the highest-graded player. I didn't say he's going to yeah, materialize yeah, yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, right. So I think Dario Saric is the other discussion point for the NBA Rookie of the Year. So we're sitting here with the potential two guys that could have been Rookie of the Year— Ben Simmons hasn't even played a minute yet. We've got this guy, I can't remember his name, but you have got this guy over in Europe who is the best European player now who the Sixers have the draft. Is that basically
1: right? what we were saying about Saric last year?
2: Correct. Yeah, yeah. Saric was stashed. This guy's only 20, the guy I'm talking about. He's stashed over in Europe until the Sixers decide to bring him back over. You had the third pick of the draft. I think people... We have like $50 million under the salary cap. So this is the another question. People ask, is this finally the year where the Sixers go big in the free agent market, try to get a veteran like Kyle Lowry of the Toronto Raptors as a free agent? Mm-hmm. Do you pay him? He averaged 24 points a game this season. Do you bring him in to go go play with Ben Simmons? I think people are very bullish. I would be surprised if the Sixers are not anything less than a 500 team this next year. I would Mm. be disappointed. Mm -hmm. Just to remind our fans, they went from ten wins last year, two years ago, to twenty-eight wins this year. Obviously, they need to get to forty-one to be five hundred. I'm predicting a five hundred season this year.
1: All right, there. You heard it. I'm bullish. i I'm bullish. What do you make of the NBA playoffs so far? So we just rolled out of the Eastern Conference semis with Boston clipping the Wizards in Game Seven. They now, of course, get the Cavs. Do, I mean, on
2: 3,000 days of rest
1: yeah, that's right We and those guys needed it the, but we've been shorting the Celtics you know for some time now do they have any chance at all?
2: no so let me <laughs> let me also just to remind our friends every week people are probably saying when's Bradlow going to tell us about when the 538 numbers are again well here are the updated odds of winning the NBA Finals so the Warriors are at a massive get ready folks 89% according to 538 to win the NBA Finals So to win the finals, I mean, that's an ungodly... And then the Celtics and Cavs are at 4% and the Spurs at 3%. So, But what's interesting more to me isn't that they've had the Spurs at this massive number all along. Obviously, they have the Cavs and the Celtics at the same number. Now, we've talked about on the air why that's true. They kind of downgraded the Cavs because the Cavs weren't playing seriously at the end of the season, but their model didn't take that into account. No, I don't think the Celtics have any chance whatsoever. When I say any chance... 5% chance. It would take a significant injury to either LeBron... I don't even think Kyrie Irving or Kevin Love getting injured would actually do it. I think LeBron James is playing so well right now. I think unless he got injured... I think they beat the Celtics. I told you, I've said this four weeks ago on Wharton Moneyball, I think the, Celt- the the Cavaliers wanted the Celtics. They didn't want the Wizards. They in- I think they intentionally, they were happy to be in the two spot, <laughs> to not have to face the Wizards and not have to face the Bulls in the first round. Um, the la- People that may not remember, two games before the end of the regular season, they were playing the Celtics in a very meaningful game. At that point, it looked like it was for the number one seed. The Cavs lost the last two games. Ended up, the Bo- Cavaliers went to Boston. This was for the. It was a Sunday game for the number one seed on the line. Both teams fully healthy. The Cavaliers beat them by forty in Boston. So, Jeez. so I think if I'm the Cavs, I'm thinking to myself i don't know, you know we were three and one against them this year. If we play okay, we'll, maybe we'll lose a game. You know I don't think the Cavaliers are worried at all about the Celtics.
1: Okay, so we were saying the same thing about the Warriors and Spurs going into game one. People basically didn't give them any chance. They went out there and they were up by twenty one when Leonard goes down. Did you watch game one? what's your take And then, of course, game two, you know down now, two starters they were they were blown out
2: yeah um. I actually blame the the Spurs uh, for Game One, and here's what I mean by that. I mean it was you just have. To, I mean um, they try, look the Caval- the Warriors are one of the great all time teams, but you have to find a way to win that game. I mean, you have to find They're a way. They're down two of their starters against... No, no, no. I said game one. I
1: know, but Leonard goes out. Tony Parker. I know, out. but They're you're against yeah, the, best know, team, but the best team. One the best teams. Of, in the,
2: I know, but it's the middle of the third quarter, and you're up 21, 25 points. So
1: you know, it just then you just go to four corners offense and just not and, and double down on defense. Double
2: and, down on defense and rebounding, and make the cat make the Warriors have to shoot sixty percent from the field for the last quarter and a half to win the game, mm-hmm. and. Um, they turned the ball over a bunch, and you know, under pressure on the road, they had a lot they were playing of playing. Turn- the
1: point guard was like twenty years old. I mean, what the heck? Did, did, I didn't know half the players. I didn't know uh, three quarters of the players on. Yeah, they- but they
2: still had you know, Ginobili played a bunch under Ginobili pressure. Did play it, Patty yeah. Mills, forty year
1: old, forty year old Ginobili.
2: Don't exaggerate. Thirty nine. <laughs> yeah. Patty Mills played a bunch. He's got a lot of playoff experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. but either way, um, it's hard to know. This is one of the things people say. Oh my God, did you see what happened last night? The Warriors beat the Spurs by thirty nine points, which is true. There's no Bayesian updating needing. It's a meaningless run up score in a game of teams. Yeah, you take the two best players off the Spurs. Yeah. The Warriors are 30 points better. It has no value to say what's going to happen if they play the Cavs. Is, is, Parker, no.
1: is Parker out for the rest of the he season?
2: He is. He's out for the rest is, of the season. Leonard
1: might still come back.
2: Leonard's likely to play. I mean, obviously, the you know, the last stand for the Spurs is Game 3 at home. Yeah, sure. Um, and, yes, Leonard is planning on playing. He probably could have played last night. But to be honest with they're probably like, we're not going to win this game anyway, yeah. probably. Let's maximize our chances to get Game 3. It,
1: it felt like one of those things where a, a guy is down – four games in a set and he's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna mail the rest of this set in and store my strength for the next set. And this happens in tennis all the time.
2: Yeah, look, the thing that has to happen for someone to beat the Warriors though is here's the problem. You gotta you have three prolific scores in Curry, Thompson and Durant. And you know, one many people argue Durant is like the best offensive player in the NBA in the last ten years. One, at least, more than one of them is going to have to have a bad game or a bad series for you to beat them. Mm-hmm. That's why it'll be interesting to see what happens when the Cavs play them, because you know if all three of Durant, Curry, and Thompson play well. I don't know how anybody beats them. Like
1: You're not even mentioning Green. I mean, geez. well,
2: he's he's just a great. He does all the dirty he does everything, work. Yeah. He does everything for that team. But again, you know, the bottom line is they're probably going to score. The Cavs weren't. The reason why the Cavs Elo rating is so low this year, do you remember, is their defensive rating is poor. I mean, the Cavs. Sorry, the Warriors are probably going to score one hundred and ten points a game on anybody. So now well, the question is, can the Cavs put up one hundred and twenty?
1: In your in your assessment, your kind of gut intuitive assessment about. That projected finals matchup, Cavs-Warriors, yep. what probability do you give the Cavs? Forget forget 538, yep, forget I, the market. What's what's your probability?
2: Well, I'm going to go back to your comment earlier, Cade, and we were talking about who to draft. I'm going to go back to this being a convex function. I think LeBron James is so much better than everybody else. I think he is the greatest player in the NBA. You think he can
1: take things over like Curry can't? Well, like Thompson can't.
2: Correct. Durant. Durant. Durant can do it, except we've seen what happens to Durant at end of games. You know, in a close game, who do you trust with the ball in their hand? And I trust LeBron James with the ball in his hand. And so I, I would say the Cavs are definitely an underdog. I would go just my gut. I would say. Two-thirds, one-third. Two-thirds for the Warriors. Okay. But not 89% to 4%.
1: Man, that's that still feels that still feels strong. It still feels long. You would give it even less, more for the Caps. Well, pr- probably. Just, I'm going to be a little more aggressive about it, for sure. I mean, they won last year, right? And and they, they didn't have Durant. I mean, I, I get well, that. Well, that's but the big game changer. I, I, I hear you. Adi Weiner joined us. Adi Weiner, welcome to the show.
3: It's good to be here. I wanted to jump in and... Offer uh, some criticism, comments, I guess, about uh, uh, from Eric's forecast. So just to recap, 5% is 538 right now. on, on
2: uh, 4% now for the Cavs.
3: 4%. They actually uh, have the Celtics as favored. No, in, they're, in now, the, they're the, now equalized. The, they're it. Now, they've equalized it. Yeah. So if you take that, um, so what what is your chance? No, uh, I said 33%
2: conditional on uh, the Cavs. Conditional, that's going to right. The so what do
3: you think the Cavs' chances are of, of defeating the Celtics? Uh, 90%. 90%. So you're in the realm of about... Um, Eighteen to twenty percent overall. Then with the Cavaliers, which is interesting because I was listening to yeah. I was listening to Five Thirty podcast, and Neil Payne has exactly that same forecast, and which is interesting because he's an, he's Five Thirty Eight. You know, writer, and he has to stand by their Elo model, oh. and he essentially says, "I can't stand by you it. You can't stand you by can't it. You can't stand yeah. by it." And and but the, what was interesting is the is the thought process, because the thought process is focused on the fact that the Cavs are a different team right now than we've been seeing all season, and Elo just not loads momentum
2: up. by you. We're talking about
3: non-stationarity, non- non-stationarity here. Just to just be clear, clear just to about to be one hundred percent clear, it's not so. Just for momentum would be because they're winning. They're they're now even better, but non-stationarity means they're just a different team. They they play they're playing a different way they're Something more they' structure they're, 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 yeah I LeBron mean, decided that you know it's he wants playoff to play. time now I want to play so so so, uh, there's a huge gap between five percent and about twenty percent. <laughs> I mean, a gigantic gap, and we it only looks like fifteen percent, but it really is a factor of four.
2: Well, I just want to bring just quickly Audie's point. If it's ninety-five to five, it's nineteen to one favorite for the other team. If it's 80-20, now all of a sudden it's a four to one. So I mean, these as you pointed out, this is the not the fallacy. People
3: mistake this. Well, it's not that much more chance.
2: No, it's no, a lot no. more chance. It's a, it's it's a lot, a lot, lot more. more chance.
3: Yeah, it's. I mean, if you if you're getting twenty to one odds or nineteen to one odds, and the actual odds are more like four to one, wow! That Take is it. A, That is a mint. We, Take I mean, it. That is
1: a giant money factory. Okay, fellas, before we go to break, one trivia question for you. What, what, what school has a player on each of the remaining NBA teams?
3: Hmm. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you I'll let you hang for a second and I'll give you a hint they're not obscure players in fact I believe they're they're starters
2: okay can you, if you tell me the players I'll know who it is no
1: I'll give you st- it's a starter on each of the last four teams That's, That I mean, you've narrowed it down to 20 players come on man st- one school has provided a starter to each of the remaining four teams now, maybe there's more than I one I mean, school. My,
2: my, my first one was North Carolina, then yeah. it was Duke. Yeah,
1: that's one, that's, that's one base rate approach to this problem. What's Kentucky, a, you know. Eric, what's another base rate approach to this question? A base rate approach to start, well, not me. Eric, not, if I'm asking the question. Well, <laughs> in, in Texas. I mean, you're telling me Texas? LaMarcus Aldridge, Kevin Durant, Avery Bradley, Tristan Thompson. Look well, at that. wait,
2: that's a, Who needs those tar heels? That's amazing. <laughs> actually the one actually the one I didn't know, actually, I'll be honest. I knew Lamarcus Aldridge. Um I didn't know I did I knew um I didn't know you a- know
1: Durant. Of Durant.
2: Course. I didn't know I actually did not know that Avery Bradley and um, Tristan Tom- Actually Tristan Thompson I really didn't know. Avery yeah, Bradley absolutely. maybe if I had well, thought wow. Man,
1: 3 of these guys are one year players. But that's the nature of college basketball these days. But that's good fun, right? That's good. That's, that's a, a great good trivia good question. All right, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning coming to you live 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. We're in Huntsman Hall in the SiriusXM Business Radio Studio looking out onto Locust Walk. Audie Weiner has joined us now, our third of four collaborators here at Wharton Moneyball. Others this morning are Cade Massey and Eric Bradlow. You can join the conversation. You want to jump in here with us, give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 7866 You can also email us. The address is businessradio at CSXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Handle is at WMoneyball. I
2: tweeted right from in front of my TV last <laughs> night, and I'd be thrilled if someone tweeted me back about their <laughs> thoughts about the NBA uh, draft lottery last night at Wharton Moneyball. At W Money Bowl.
1: So we have we have been talking a little NBA draft. We've we've also got Obviously, other sports going on. All but the big one, football's on the sidelines yet for a few more months. But we're going to talk baseball some here, guys. Uh, we'll have our we'll have some some guests here shortly. But anything of uh, interest to you right now, in particular?
2: Well, the one thing that caught my eye. I'm using the Adi Weiner formula here. Was so the Rockies are 24 and 15, good record, very good record. Their runs for and runs against are essentially the same. And I started to look, why? Well, they've got the number one closer right now in baseball, Greg Holland. He's 16 for 16 in saves, a 0.8 whip, an ERA of one, and he's striking out 13 batters per nine innings. So they're essentially winning every close game. And the- but they are winning in the ninth inning they're winning in the ninth inning Which and is a saying highly
3: that, unlucky thing i right. mean uh, like unlikely thing
2: i'm just saying that i it, it was interesting cuz your thoughts your famous formula runs yep. four minus runs against divided by the total says they should be roughly 50% yep. and I, then that made me dig one level deeper i and immediately to the close, and i said Got to be a great closer.
1: I, quen- Eric, I didn't follow the stats there quickly. Did, were you using stats that we know are persistent, and reliable, or are you just? Yeah, that's of back- correct. To- yes. okay. so, so
2: Adi, that- there's you know, there's the Pythagorean theorem, uh, I, but, but I know, Adi's got I a mean, simpler the closer, one.
1: The closer stats you went with?
2: Oh well, I went with saves, which is that's standard. Wh- that's horrible. Whip, walks plus. Oh hits. no, he's a
1: great. He's he's doing great. I, he's I having know, a great I, season. He's shutting everyone at, down. So I looked at. What I'm suggesting is that if you find a team that's winning a lot of closed games, their closer probably looks good. And so are you pushing past what looks good into the more fundamental stuff? I'm saying...
2: I think most people would say whip, ERA, strikeout rate, and balls and play rate are fairly standard statistics. I'm not cherry-picking stats. I picked the four that are listed on every player's card. I didn't have to dig to third level to find it. Let me
3: close this up, because what what, what Eric is saying is that the Colorado Rockies essentially are forecasted to be almost a 500 team by their run-scored runs allowed. And now the question is, why are they have a great winning percentage? Why are they 24 and 15? So one possibility is that their closer is is incredible and isn't blowing any late games. A second possibility is that the Colorado Rockies have just been particularly lucky to be end, end up on the high side of the
1: of the equation in a bunch of extra games. Right. Well, one way to sort it is just let's talk to a closer. Let's co- make a call to the bullpen.
3: Here comes the skipper on his way
2: to the mound. That's going to be I'll all be for his starter ball this ball afternoon. Ball.
0: Einstein said it best, it's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the old one count, Chipper Jones at 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data.
1: Wharton Moneyball's called to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. All right, Rick Peterson, welcome to the show. Higher this morning?
0: Wow, I'm doing great. It sounds like you guys got some things
1: rocking and rolling here. Buddy. <laughs> well, these guys, you know how it is talking baseball with these guys. You pin them up, you don't let them talk about it for half an hour, and then when you do... Explosions, you know, explosion. yes. For those who don't know, Rick spent 15 years in the majors as a pitching coach for the A's during the Moneyball era with the Mets, most recently as pitching development coach for the Baltimore Orioles. He's a acclaimed keynote speaker and recently published a book called Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick joins us during baseball season more or less every other week. Been doing that for a few years, has greatly deepened our knowledge of the game, and we're delighted to have you, as always, Rick. Rick, last week we had a couple of pitching-related guests we'd like to get your thoughts on before we drive, dive into more current news. So, nice. we, you know, Rick Ankeel has published a book about his life and what he's gone through after getting the, what he calls the yips as a pitcher. And we spent half an hour with him on the phone last week and what was a pretty, a pretty amazing conversation. And then in the following half hour, just independently, we, we talked with the guys from Modus who are producing this sleeve that pitchers yep. wear, capturing yep. motion and pressure and force in the elbow in particular. Yeah, and so they're, they're, we figured you probably had thoughts on both of those topics and are curious, curious your take. Maybe first with, with Rick.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I saw Rick. I saw Rick coming up as a pitcher, and I I, I experienced that whole thing watching that phenomena when, you know, here he is going, I believe it was going into the postseason after having a great... It was,
1: That's right. Know, that rookie year. His first, It was his second year, but it was his first full year.
0: His first full year, right. And then all of a sudden, geez, I mean, I, I was watching that game as it unfolded, and I was nauseous. I, I was really nauseous. I mean, because I, I've seen that. It, it, one of the things we talk about in Crunch Time, our book, is the fact that setbacks and failures are all part of the day, the game of life, on the field and off the field. And when we have setbacks, it's truly a case of mistaken identity. At that moment, we no longer look at ourselves as the a, as the a successful people we truly are. We look at ourselves as failure, as failures, and then in our mind. We all go to this place. Like I'm so stupid. What was I thinking? I'm an idiot. How can right. I do this? Right. And if our, our thoughts were literally broadcast over loudspeakers for everyone to hear, people would think we're crazy. And and sometimes setbacks. Some, so, sometimes setbacks last momentarily. You know, for I think for the great the, the great athletes, but other for others like Rick. It lasted a lifetime. Well, Rick,
2: let me ask you a question. How much? This is Eric Bradlow, and it's good to have you back on the show as always. How do you? How much time as a pitching development coach do you spend on what I call the insurance policy? Because these bad, you know, do you train for the positive moments or do you train for the insurance policy? And how do you think about that?
0: Probably ninety percent. Ninety percent of what my number one responsibility as a big league pitching coach was to keep our pitchers' minds calm. And focused under pressure, and I would often say many, many times in big pressure situations, "Hey guys, it's good to have butterflies, but they got to fly in formation, right to the glove, right <laughs> to the catcher's glove. You got to hit the glove." And and you know, I've told that story many times when and it's one of the first stories in crunch time when Jason Isringhausen couldn't feel his legs in Yankee Stadium. <laughs> that, that that setback lasted a week, a week, and and during that week. I was literally concerned that this this may scar his entire career, you know. But he was able to come back and go on for 300 plus saves. And but I mean, I've seen it with everybody. I saw it with Pedro Martinez. I saw it with Tommy Glavin. I mean, no one's immune to it. Right. I mean, if, and you start to look at. Jordan Spieth, Jordan Spieth has not been the same since he put that ball That's in right. the water a year ago That's on the 12th tw- right. hole in the Masters.
3: The first ball in the water or the second <laughs> one? The second one, the I The second, second one, second. I assume you mean. So, Rick, I wanted to ask you about Rick Ankiel. So he tried to come back as a pitcher. He worked with a psychologist. He spent a few years, and he just gave up because he said it was, wasn't fun anymore. It was so much Correct. work to try to keep, stay on the game psychologically, that he essentially reta- retired, and then, of course, we have the great comeback and h- how that was engineered. I, I, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts about a, a pitcher, Trent, who had all these psychological problems and which essentially ruined his career as a pitcher, coming back as a as a position player.
0: That's ama- absolutely amazing. I, I, I'm trying to think of anybody who's ever done it. Uh, he, he may be the only. I, I can't think of one one pitcher that made it to the big leagues as an accomplished pitcher that looked like he was going to have a really nice career as a pitcher and then for whatever reason whether it's a physical injury or a mental you know deficiency and then come back and be a successful player in the big leagues i mean th- that that really goes to show how you know how unique and how talented you know on a physical level he truly is and, and mentally you know that he was that he would eventually Allow himself to have the the, the self compassion, which I don't think I've ever said that ever in my life, but but a, but a self compassion where he could literally forgive himself and say, you know what, it's okay, it, it, it's all right now, you know, let me give this up and then let me go enjoy playing baseball again because I love playing baseball.
2: And that's what that is what he talked about. But Let me ask you, were there any pitchers that you coached, Rick, that you thought had the abilities? I remember, I'm just remembering this. I, you know, not that he was, you know. Babe Ruth-level hitting, but I remember Tom Glavin being a good hitting pitcher. Were there any pitchers you coached that you thought could have, you know, had they spent their career batting, they could have been good?
0: Oh, many. Rick Roden, Don, Don, Donnie Robinson. Rick Roden used to win the Silver, Silver Slugger Award all the time. Donnie Robinson, after having many, many physical injuries as a pitcher, actually went to Instructional League. One fall to play the outfield because he was that he was that that good a hitter, you know, literally. Mm-hmm. But they were gifted. I mean, Donnie Robinson could have went to any, you know, many schools in the country to be a quarterback. I mean, I mean, these are gifted that, people. Well, awesome. do you remember also
2: about Rick Roden and the story there. He also has won every golf tournament, celebrity golf tournament. The guy's also good at that too. <laughs> Rick, Rick, what? I, I, what that's amazing.
0: I, I was I was with the Pirates very quickly. I was with the Pirates as a bullpen coach when Rick Roden was pitching and we became very close and, you know, we, we played many, many rounds of golf and, you know, he, he actually, you know, we'd go out and play and he basically instructed me there, you know, gave me some golf lessons while we were playing.
1: <laughs> so a, a big, a big story in the news. We're gonna, we're talking to Rick Peterson. Rick spent 15 years in the major leagues and a lifetime around it really. Uh, and one of the all time greats uh, was recognized at Yankee stadium this past week. He, his monument uh, plaque was uh, installed there. And so there's lots of conversation about Jeter and and of course inevitably the questions become like how how great was he right was he people say he's probably not the greatest shortstop of all time but you know he had a hell of a career and and five championships so one of the questions we're curious to get your perspective on is how do you think about him as a player on the field versus a leader on the team and a guy in the clubhouse and it raises this age old question one that analysts are often skeptical of that a player can contribute above and beyond the stats he produces on the field.
0: There's no question about it. And it comes back. I've said this many times in our show, your mind is your master, your body is your servant. And it goes back. I've said this about Tom Brady, you know, Derek Jeter, what makes them so great. They weren't the fastest runner. They didn't jump the highest. They didn't have the best arms. They didn't have the best power. They had the best minds on the field without question. And when you, when you walk down that field, you knew that Derek Jeter was going to find some way to beat you on a, on a daily basis. And, the, and you, you felt it. You knew it. We went into the playoffs in, in, sub, after September 11th, and you know we had a game plan to face Jeter, and it was just like, hey, listen, this is the guy that we're most concerned about. If he comes up with money on the table, this is a guy that produces. And it, it's just one of those phenomenas. I mean, it, and it's really curious because – I'm sure that the Wharton School of Business is going to eventually get to this area of trying to quantify, you know, where people's minds are and, and why people are so special and why they're so bright and why the, they're the people that make the difference in people's lives. And, and 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 that to me is what, you know, I I realize I'm I'm, from, I'm doing a TED talk this Saturday. And I've been I've been preparing for it for you know quite some time, and, and had some coaching on it. And I, I I I've I've been so introspective in this process of doing this book and now starting this new chapter in my life. And there were some things I didn't realize because as a young boy, you know, I put a uniform on when I was two, you know, growing up in the baseball. <laughs> and, 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 awesome. I, and I literally I literally have never taken it off. And people would ask often like, Rick, what, what are you going to be when you grow up? I said, I'm going to be a professional pitcher and a comedian. And I was able to do both because there were times when I pitched that people laughed. (laughs) So I was able to, you know, but but as a literally 9, 10, 11 years old, I literally remember saying, why do some of these guys make it to the big leagues and become elite major leaguers and other guys don't make it? It's their mind. They have the ability to master the mental game. in In the face of pressure, they perform their best. In that face of fear, worry, and doubt, at that moment of fight, flight, and freeze, they're able to push the pause button and say, what's my opportunity, and act on it. And it's been, it's been a lifelong study for, for me to study the mental game and, that, and, and to coach the mental game, because I'm so intrigued with it. And, and it's totally the difference maker. Some people have the mind, and some people just don't. But you can train it. It's a skill. It's a skill, and, and I'm looking forward. I, I listened to a great interview with Theo Epstein not too long ago, and he was talking about, you know, Moneyball came out, and it totally reframed the entire major league Major League Baseball, not only that, but multiple other businesses, as you guys know better than I do. He said, but now, you know, then, then a few, ways, few years later, in a short few years, there was five teams that were Moneyball teams. He said, there's all, all 30 teams are Moneyball teams. Now, there's no competitive advantage in that area any longer because everybody's caught up. He said, now the area is the mind. How, how can we quantify the mind and acquire players? And then you look at that, and you look at John Lester, Who's been a big difference in them last year? He can't throw the ball to first base. Are you kidding me? Right. You know, right. You can't <laughs> throw the ball to first base and yet you're a great pitcher that you throw, you can throw the ball in a different direction at sixty feet and do it exceptionally well for hundred pitches a game. <laughs> but you can't throw it like two or three times at yep. the other
3: but Rick, see one of the things that you're talking about when you bring up uh, Lester's inability to throw the first, or we had Rick Ankeel's inability to throw the ball to home plate in a, in a game. He was amazing in the bullpen. I remember Chuck Knobloch throwing it in, out into the into the stands from second base. These are what I would call sort of a, a, um, acute sort of problems. And we talk about mental the, the There's a huge psychometric metric literature and trying to predict performance. And this, but the problems that you're talking about here are kind of breakdown issues. And I don't think there's any any literature that says how you can predict whether someone's going to have the fortitude to withstand these kind of problems that, that would emerge. Um, they're, they're almost um, psychopathological. They're, they're almost a problem. Um, and and that's, it seems to me that so much, so much of your work is to deal with individual athletes and when they have to deal with crisis. And, and that's, a, that's a wide open field.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and, and, that, and I, when I look back on my career, you know, that's what I did best. You know, I help pitchers, you know, understand that, you know, all the pitchers that believe they can... And all the pitchers that believe they cannot are both right. And, and my, my role as a coach was to help them believe that they can. You know, why can't you? Let, let's take a look at some of the great pitchers in the game. Your fastball is as good as this guy. Your, your secondary pitches are as good as this guy. Why can't you be as good as this guy? Of course you can. You know, but it's your mind. And it's the ability, literally, one pitch at a time. You take a starting pitcher, he's roughly going to throw somewhere between 3,200 and 3,400, 3,400 pitches a year. If he gets 32 starts, if he stays healthy, which is rare in today's game. But you you can train your mind to literally one pitch at a time. And one of the things I would always do with our pitchers coming into the next year, I would say, can you make a 2% improvement? 2%. So let's say as a starter you threw 3,000 pitches. You know, 2% is what, 60? Let's take, we'll give you 60 mulligans. You go back, you pick out the 60 mulligans. How would you do? Where would your mind be if we gave you a mulligan on 60 pitches, only two percent? How well do you think you would do now? Probably cut your ERA in half, and then take all, take a look at all the others.
3: Well, that depends on which 60 pitches. <laughs> well, that's what
0: I'm saying. You choose them. You okay. choose your mulligan. I mean, go back to Jordan speed. Jordan, you got two shots. You got two. Sh- How many shots have you made? Practice shots and, and 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 tournament shots. You got two shots. Let's go back to the, the hole number 12. Where would Jordan Spieth now be today if you could put your mind in a different place?
2: No, I, Rick, Yeah, so Rick, I have a couple questions. When I was evaluating, since we're on the Jeter topic, I thought I'd actually look at some objective data, if you'd like, and, you know, it, there's many stats one could look at. I looked at wins above replacement. Turns out mm-hmm. Derek Jeter's 88th all-time, but I wanted to get your perspective of Jeter versus two other people that certainly played overlapping 12 to 15 years with him who are also in the top 100 wins above replacement, just to get your sense. The other two, not surprisingly, are Albert Pujols, and Alex Rodriguez. So I just want to be clear. When you were a pitching coach under a time of pressure, you would have possibly rather had your pitcher face Albert Pujols or Alex Rodriguez as compared to Derek Jeter?
0: I would rather have them face A-Rod. A-Rod over Jeter. Um it, I mean we had a way to, to pitch to, to A-Rod. In fact, after after I left Oakland um, and Ramon Hernandez left Oakland, A-Rod reached out to Ramon Hernandez and said, i, I got to know, tell me what was your game plan against us.
3: <laughs> That's interesting. Did you figure something out that no one else knew about A-Rod?
0: I don't know what anybody else knew. I only knew what we knew. Um, well, other people yeah.
3: didn't seem to get him out. So, <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, but, but I, I think and, and, and Jeter... I think the I mean, I remember there was an article in one of the New York papers. I don't know if it was the Post or the or the Times or the or the Daily News, but we shut Jeter down in in, in that two thousand um two thousand one series. I mean we we faced Jeter probably forty some times. I, I would I would be curious what the numbers are. You guys can look that up, I'm sure you're if you're interested. But his his batting average in the postseason was over three hundred. But we, we did well against Jeter. If you could keep the ball down against Jeter when I say down again, I'm talking about the bottom of the kneecap. He was a highball hitter. And when I say highball hitter, you go about six inches above the kneecap, <laughs> the cheater's really good. I mean, your your margin is very, very small. Very, very small. Albu Pujols, when he was at the top of his game, and you went in to lay out a game plan against him, you know, and you look at his last 30, 40, 50, 60 games, he had no place to go in a strike zone to get Albu Pujols out. <laughs> except, except, like about, Four inches on the outside corner. You had about three to four inches on the outside corner, but it had to be right at the hollow of the kneecap. Right at the hollow of the kneecap. You, you, you went about three, four inches above. If you went to the hollow of the kneecap, his batting average is 220. Wow. You went, you went about four or five inches above the kneecap, you know, you're talking about like two ninety, three twenty.
1: 320 Got it. Rick, we're, we're down to just the last few minutes, and people have been talking about their memories of Jeter. You've obviously got some. If, you, if you're going to name one lasting memory of Jeter, what would it be?
0: Well, you know, it was interesting. <laughs> you know, that September 11th um, postseason, we, we went into Yankee Stadium and we left up two zero. Game three was Jeter's backflip. And if you wanted to stand at the field level, and watch that play and watch the genius of Derek Jeter, I was standing there. Because the, the Oakland A dugout was down the third baseline. And when we were on offense, I'd go, I'd go to the left field side of the dugout just to get out of everybody's way. There was a lot of traffic down the other end for hitters going you know, to the batting, to the um, on-deck circle and the on that line. And, and at the end of the dugout, you were lined up literally with third base all the way down to that right field corner. So Soriano, the second baseman on that play and the double down the right field line, he's about 60 feet out on the outfield grass. Tino Martinez is about 20 feet on the outfield grass. And as soon as the ball came out of Shane Spencer's hand, I went like, he overshot everybody. He threw it over everybody's head. Well, Jeter was lined up to third base, like right in front of me, lined up towards, towards Shane Spencer. And as soon as the ball came out of Spencer's hand, Jeter started running for it. And I'm, and I'm watching the planet fall, and I'm going, There's no way, there's no way, there's no way. <laughs> and, and and there you go. And, you know, so it was like, here you are. I mean, you can still feel like the pain that you have for like, we were up 2 0 against the Yankees in September 11th playoffs, and we lost three straight. And mm. if Jeter doesn't make that backflip, you know, we, we sweep. And I'm watching the ceremony just because of the greatness and just, you know, just curious, like, all right. I, I I understand why he's great, and I'm intrigued because he's got the best mind. You know, he's got a Hall of Fame mind. And as they are rating all the great defensive plays that Cheater has ever made, the one he dove into the stands and cut his face, the number one was the backflip. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. All right. There we go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Rick, that's great. That's great. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I always appreciate you taking some time to talk with us here on the show.
0: Yeah, what a pleasure. I learn something every time I'm on this show. I mean the, the stuff that you guys look at is just amazing and it and and it, 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 it opens my mind to all of you know so many other possibilities to look at things from the to to reframe other other situations which is awesome.
1: Well Thank come you. come back in two weeks and we'll do it again. Awesome. That was Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach in the major leagues with the A's, Mets, and more. most recently with the Baltimore Orioles. He is the author of a new book called Crunch Time. We can recommend that book. It's a good one, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. That is the first half, the first two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two to go. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening
1: to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Some group of us are here this morning. It's Cade, Eric, and Adi. Shane is out doing... Shane, things he has been for a little while has to be said. Kids on sabbatical. I think he will return. He's going to return. Week. He's going to return if he makes his way out of the. What are we were hearing from him, he's like the horse tracks in Macau or something. The I guy's think making, that's right. Making the most of his time away. I've seen pictures of him some in some forest in Japan. <laughs> oh, sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you can join the conversation. You can stand in for Shane. You can heckle Shane. You can heckle any of us if you'd like. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. You can also email us, businessradio at business businessradio at sir- com. Especially if you're catching us, we're replayed five times or so over the course of the week. That's a great way to reach out to us while you're thinking about it. Follow us at Twitter. The handle is at WMoneyball. We are just off the phone with Rick Peterson. He's our regular baseball guest every other week or so, usually in the eight thirty slot. We often have a guest at 9 o'clock. We do have one more guest in the show. But we're going to do it in the bottom of the show, one half hour from now. So we're open lines, open conversation for the next half hour.
3: So we we were talking about about Derek Jeter. And Derek Jeter is the icon of the divergence between the statistical moneyball analysis and the conventional statistics. He's the one who's most differential. No, not even. A, I mean, not even a, a, a Moneyball analysis says he's poor. That don't go there. But the traditional statistics says he's one of the all-time best shortstops. But the
1: statistics, the Moneyball when, stati- t- tra- when you say I am going to hear him finish. Just, I, 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 well, I, I was
3: going to define what he meant by traditional statistics.
1: The just, traditional statistics st- are the hits. RBIs,
3: the runs, the hits, the the playoff, the World Series rings, um, the great plays, the five um, gold gloves, the MVP awards, the traditional but, way but, that we evaluate the batting average you were going to you're
1: you're going to say the difference the difference between the traditional stats and the more analytics based Next generation stats is is one of the largest. because so it go, it, they basically the Moneyball stats, the more analytical stats, short Jeter relative to the tradition. Yes, state. absolutely, so and
3: yeah. because he's weak on things like OPS, which was about eight seventy five for his career, um, uh, and his defense, when you look at it statistically, is not just average; it's actually well below average. He was the kind of guy who did not get to things easily, made a lot of good-looking plays, but compared to a competitor of his generation, Adam Everett, he was just horrible.
2: Well, just you know, just using the stats we talked about with Rick Peterson, and I'll compare that to the stats you just mentioned, Adi. So he's number six all-time in hits. Six. Six. All-time in hits. He's 88th in war. No, all right. I'm not saying, I mean, war's not the magic statistic, wins above replacement, but sixth in hits, 88th. He's top 20 all-time in runs scored. He's 88th in war. So his OPS, as you pointed out, is in the 870s. So that means, you know, that's not—I mean, that's, I don't even know if that's the top 100 all-time. So when people want to talk about Derek Jeter, you're right. There is the traditional stats. Like if you look on the all-time leaders of hits and runs, etc.,
1: He's there. So, so what do you do with that information? So, I mean, you guys are Yankees fans. You're analysts. You're probably as well-informed as anybody. Does that make you a... Question the stats, or B, question the the the, the, the law. I mean, one of the things that makes Derek Jeter
3: great, of course, were being with those Yankee teams and in this amazing media environment where you get all this exposure. I think that take Jeter out of oh, it's it's almost contradictory, but if you take Jeter out of New York, he's still a Hall of Famer, but he doesn't he doesn't have the reputation that he has as the as the Yankees.
1: And it's not just New York; it was the team they played on, right? This ridiculous team they had in the late '90s and early 2000s. Yes, I mean right? he
3: went five five World Series, and he
1: played with Heat. the. He, the, well, he was the, part the of a team, team that won, won, five, won five, five World Series. Series. I mean, there's a little bit of giving him the credit we give to like quarterbacks who are surrounded by great casts.
2: I mean, the one thing you can say about him is that his batting average, if you assume that playoff teams are better than the average team, which is a good thing to assume... <laughs> His batting average in the playoffs was higher than it was during his career. So there is some evidence to suggest, you know, he did perform a little bit better in the playoffs than he performed. Although his batting average, they're a little better, not statistically better, but they're certainly, he had a 325 batting average in the playoffs. And his OPS was 880, so it was right or 890, right around where it was. He also played with the best closer who ever lived, Mariano Rivera. But, you know, it makes me rethink his greatness. I, so I've always you, talked about the pantheons of the Hall of Fame. As much as I love Derek Jeter... He's not in the top. He's not no. in the... matter of fact, Mariano Rivera is in That's the a top chance. pantheon, yeah. in my view, of the Hall of Fame. He's so that
1: top you, tier. tier
3: here's, he's tier two. He's tier two. Yeah. He's a so tier two do, Hall of
1: Famer. What do you do with... Now we've got Rick Peterson, who's very open-minded about analytics. He's spent a lifetime, and his dad a lifetime before him, in Major League Baseball. He says... There was something special about him. He was one of the most difficult out in the most important situations. He says, and then he gives us this example of the backflip play, with number one defensive play in the guy's history. We just looked at it right. over break. It's amazing. It's one of those things you see, it seems like you see, special players do. You know what it reminds me of? I, I, I didn't know the play until just now, but he when he was talking about Jeter, it reminded me of Larry Bird stealing that pass, that inbounds pass, that he flipped to Dennis, Dennis Johnson. Johnson. This, and it's like only Larry Bird does that. And and my, you know, Michael Jordan kind of you had some of those elements. Michael Jordan stealing the pass, um, so well, stealing the ball from Carl yeah, Malone and, and then against the Jazz, right, and going down down court. So that's what that play looks like. So what do you, what do you do with that? It's a hundred
3: and sixty two game you, season plus yeah, a postseason. Right. Those 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 plays are are amazing and and they are emblematic of this mental mastery that made Jeter. He didn't have the physical characteristics of a tier one Hall of Famer. This is this, he didn't have anything. He willed himself to be where he is and and along the way you have those remarkable plays that are m- frankly mind-blowing but they don't I mean it's played, a very long he season he played
2: really well in yeah. the big moments he had a lot of opportunities he had a lot of coin flips yeah, in the big options, moments he right. had a lot of opportunities in the big moments and he performed well in them and you know you study availability bias and all these biases these are the things we remember we remember that's, that's these mostly, great plays
1: that's, that's great and, and if you, if you want to make that argument you've got good grounds, especially with him and that team. I mean, how many more games did he play on national TV than anybody else by dent of his being on that team? So I hear you. I do hear you on that. Every year they were in the postseason, except for his
3: last, I think.
1: Well, I told you you this amazing stat. There's only
2: one time, one game in Derek Jeter's entire career, one game. Where they were out of the running. where they were out of the payoff race. It's
1: unbelievable, and some people want to give him credit for that, and maybe there's deserve some, but not but, as, but, as much. But I mean, again, it's a te- it's a team game. But m- what I'm pushing on is we have to also say, and we always have to push and wonder what are we missing with analytics, and and can we get this element in there? As he said, Rick in the last in the last segment, Theo Epstein says, "Look, everybody's," and I fully concur with this take. All the teams in baseball have are looking at the same numbers now the advantage comes from those and no one has it yet who figure out how to get into the intangibles and so i i hear you that we should be skeptical and it's overdone and it's overhyped but i'm not yet ready to say it's not there or that we can't get we can't tap it one of the
2: one of the stats we've talked about this in football but you could do this in baseball but we'll get to the endogeneity concern in a second is you could look at players that played without jeter and with jeter Let's imagine you had, you'd have to control for their age and lots of other factors. You'd also have to f- control for the fact that the Yankees traded for these players. So there's other challenges there. But you know, what we're trying to say is, can we measure in some way his influence? This was the question that you asked Rick. Is there a way you could try to measure the influence that he would have on other players around him? So maybe his war isn't no, top 20. Maybe his batting average isn't top 20. But you know what? he had an influence on other players. To actually try to statistically measure that would be uh, the, really the, challenging to do.
1: Challenging is the, right, the right way to think about it, though. And I can challenging you- not- is I think, too, too ge-
3: generous a word. I think impossible in baseball. I mean, really, this is a, this is a sport where influence of a, of a single player on others is is only mental it's not there's a, isn't a physical component like there's right. in basketball
1: and football right. i can tell you that that people as discriminating as billy bean and daryl morey hold open the possibility that these locker room guys make a difference and it's not to take a bad team to a great team but it can take a good team to a great team and they they do think about that as they acquire players eric i know that the celebrations around jeter led you to do some digging into your numbers what did you find with war
2: well, uh, you know, I was just first of all looking of the top, you know, how many of the top 100 players in war all time are actually still playing right now? Turns out there's only three. It's Albert Pujols, who's at number 30, Adrian Beltray who's at number 46, and Carlos Beltran, who's at 99. So those are the only three players currently playing. This is lifetime war. Of can, course. You,
1: can you remind us what war is?
2: So it's wins above replacement. So if you had a player, the average player at their position, at your position, and you inserted them into the lineup. It's not
3: the average player. It's the it's a replacement Placement level player. player. It's average not an average not, player? No, it's a replacement level. So it's a comp- that's actually a big discussion in itself. Replacement meaning meaning um, I need someone, someone goes down, I need to go to the pool of available oh, players. Oh, so it's like it the, is? So literally like someone the, It's like
1: the worst starter, basically. Uh,
3: uh, well, no, because it, it, it has to be someone who's not locked up on a team. I know, but it's essentially it's essentially the like that. The I like, mar- the actually, marginal, I
2: like it even better now that you've corrected me that it's yeah. It's actually about a replacement player. It's not about someone that you couldn't possibly get right. at the time. So,
3: but the real innovation for, of war for baseball, and I think for other sports who've tried to, to copy it, is that it, it integrates all facets of the game into a single number. So baseball is, a comp- is obviously divided into defense and offense, and it combines those. It also it, it also makes an accommodation, and this is where it gets very fluffy and problematic, for position so if you're a yeah. center fielder how, how in the world do they compare center fielders to pitchers uh, well of course so pitchers have their own mechanism for generating wins above replacement and, and it's a scale that can be compared so for, an, for a on the, on the position side of things you have to integrate these three factors the defense the offense and the this position adjustment for pitchers you just put it on a different scale but starters okay. have its, their own measure relievers have been traditionally mis, or thought to be uh, uh, poorly evaluated by war um, actually, writing a paper with some students. We have a lab here at, at, at Wharton does baseball research, and we have a, our first paper will be coming out, which actually introduces a new war for pitchers because we think it hmm. it does a very bad thing for starting pitchers. And. Um, and and there's a weakness there, but I think the biggest weakness is this position adjustment and defense, which particularly historically is is estimated almost almost oddly. I mean, how do you our modern uh, defense analysis uses high tech data? Yeah, uh, but that data has been online for ten, not much more than ten years. Yeah. What do you go back to Willie Mays' uh, generation and try to figure out how valuable yeah. he was in the Num- defense? Ha- Number five, all How'd, time in right. war by How'd the way. Of course, how do they do that? D- uh, ba- basically, they looking can't. at opportunities. And and plays and they make a, they make a, some assumptions that, that essentially say a center fielder should have a certain number of of, of putouts he has a certain number and okay. extra and uh, so and then it's you subtract really for large errors
1: large and, samples and if they were in equivalent situations which we know they aren't so they but they have to do huge ballpark adjustments then uh, they try um, ballpark adjustments or another um, you know shooting the breeze kind of
3: thing yeah, it's so very you, hard to get
2: you would be happy though if I did I uh, I didn't do this but if I had done a comparison of let's say Jeter versus is other second baseman and shortstops like people in a like yes so or even th- maybe you now, look war is supposed thir- to,
3: co- to account for this. I no, no, no. but even but it does but, a bad job right
2: so yeah, when we yeah. look at other players is there any other I mean there is no other shortstop that I think I know but I have to look at Ernie Banks's numbers I don't know where he would or Cal Ripken's numbers to Cal see Ripken where they is were
3: considered to be much better by War than Jeter.
2: Well, I'm just... So that would be something to look at.
1: Yeah. What about A-Rod? So third isn't well, that far A-Rod was number from
2: 16 all time. Okay. Number 16 all time in war. That's a incredible. Matter of fact, the only two kind of modern era players in the top 20... I'm not including Mays and Aaron, who are modern era. I mean, modern, modern era. Roger Clemens is number eight all-time all in war, and Alex Rodriguez is 16. And by the way, I think if I had asked you this question, Adi, and you thought about it for a bit, you probably would have picked those two players. In some sense, A-Rod, you know, Wherever you like or dislike him, his offensive numbers are immense. Particularly between Ro-
3: ages 22 and
2: 32. And Roger Clemens, yeah. I mean, th- those would be the two. But those are the two that are like historically great war players from our generation. Just how, that, how just, do you,
1: you just mentioned an interesting thing, Adi. How do you think about the career versus peak? And we talk about that every year when the Hall of Fame rolls around. But there's a little bit of a... I almost want to. I know you give him credit for playing for a long time, but at the same time, I don't necessarily want to give him all twenty years of experience. I'd like to know, like in his best ten years, how does he compare against other players in their best ten years? I mean, ten years is still a long time.
3: I don't think I know the answer offhand about Jeter. Do you? No, nope. I I don't we'll know. Have to save that for another another but how day. How do you even think about it?
1: Right? Well, here's I, I how, don't... how do you? I mean, where do you put? What weight do you put on? you know, the first couple of years and the last couple. I mean, Jeter, I mean, who? I mean, he, played, what, he played too long. Part of the problem is, is, that, is that we know, particularly with regard to winning a championship,
3: n- wins are not the same. And wins at the high end of the scale are worth a lot more than wins down in the middle. So one of the things that... Hold on, that, what, what scale are we talking about? Winning the, winning the championship, making the playoffs. Okay. I mean, so if you need to go from 90 to 95 to wins in order to guarantee yourself a playoff spot, those wins are harder than the wins in the middle, yep, and the yep. problem with war is all wins are the same. So if you if you're a guy who can bring ten wins, I don't argue. I, I would argue that the the ninth and tenth win are probably more valuable to to your team than the okay. first and second. Okay, and that leads to a, a peak kind of analysis to say, well, what what are you producing when you were really extraordinary? Yeah, yeah, got it, got it. Got By got the
2: it. way, not not to defend Jeter one way or the other, but when you claim that Derek Jeter played too long, just to remind everybody, at age thirty eight, which was his, you remember he had an injury season in between. Um, Derek Jeter hit three sixteen um and uh had a very, very good season at age thirty-eight. He was seventh in the MVP voting. So if you want to argue his last season where he came back from injury where he only hit two fifty-six, but it's not like he was Willie Mays and he played five seasons too long. Actually, I think Derek Jeter had fifteen seasons. Derek Jeter seasons, which is why That's he ended up. Okay. with...
1: That, and and that, at that level of longevity, you just you, you give him lots of credit. Clearly, clearly, this is Wharton Mundel. You can join the conversation. Open lines this half hour. Uncharacteristically, we have a guest coming up in the bottom of the hour. Give us a ring one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six guys. We talked basketball in the first half hour. Is anybody paying attention to hockey? Doll. We're also down to the conference finals in hockey.
2: I yeah you know, I just know that it's two to one in one series you
1: know I mean if the Bradlow household isn't watching it hockey then my gosh what hope do they have in the United States really yeah there's I not just, a room dedicated to it well, you're not I talking w- about it over breakfast with your sons
2: not hockey I would wow. have been excited you know maybe if the Penguins because you know I like some of the players on the Penguins if the Penguins make it to the finals they're still in they're up one nothing if they make it to the finals. I always watch Game 7s in any sport, so I would probably watch it, but I'm not that excited. I
1: have to say, I mean, the the West is Anaheim versus Nashville. I mean, what world do we live in when the conference finals in NHL is Anaheim versus Nashville? What hope do they have that people care about this?
3: Not a lot. Well, well I mean, the, and I like hockey. The fans but... care, but I'm not sure if the if the country cares.
2: Well, the ratings, as you know, I mean, you put on this, you know, the Sunday of the Boston Golf Tournament, and it gets higher ratings than the NHL. The NHL ratings on national television are very, very poor. It's a
1: shame. It's a great sport. I'm still a huge fan of the sport. the The East, at least, is is Ottawa versus Pittsburgh, um, and so we've got we've got some hockey left. Let's see if it let's see if it fires up, but as they as they as they move a little bit closer to the finals, uh, other. Sports Sports, fellas, we had a, we had an interesting winner in the at the TPC, the fifth major, the the uh, and at the famed golf course down there. Uh, this Korean golfer, yes.
2: Well, the thing that was amazing about him is number one, he's only twenty one years old, so he's the youngest player to win that tournament. So that's pretty impressive. Um, But he's been a pro for four years. They've listed something like he's played 130th. This is his 130th professional tournament, and he's 21 years old. So you can do the math. It means he's played 30-something tournaments a year. Do you know how many on the PGA? I don't, but it's something like – I heard it. It's something like 15 to 20. But, I mean, the guy's not – I mean, he's a rookie. He's not a rookie. He's 21, but he's a veteran-type guy. The thing that yeah. struck me the most was his odds going into the tournament were 500 to 1. Yeah. Why does that strike you? How many, how many players have odds in that realm in a tournament? Good question. Um, uh, roughly in those tournaments, about 100 players make the cut, meaning not make the cut, are, na- are allowed to play in the tournament. I would say there's probably 10 to 15 players at most. That have odds that low. There's a lot of guys in the 100-to-1 yeah. range, 50-to-1 range, but 500-to-1, probably only the last 10 players who I'm struggling to even know who they are. And I follow golf very, very closely. What
3: I'm arguing is that if there are 10-to-20 players in each tournament who have odds in that range, then you should be looking at how many, how many tournaments do you have to go until you see one of these happen. And I'd say it's about 25
2: yeah, and I think, and here's the thing, Am I, I right? think,
1: yeah, I follow your, follow your that's, logic, follow that's your once logic. the math would say, but it's actually- A couple actually, times
2: a year, maybe? I don't think, I mean, again, I would have- Yeah, no, we're not, I don't uh, think
1: we're seeing it a couple times a year. Okay. But we I might don't be think it, we're seeing right. that we might a couple We seeing it times. once a year. It may more, maybe, maybe two out of three years. I think, that's, Absolutely. I think it's good logic. I, think I think that's I think it's actually logic.
2: pretty good, what I call envelope math. I think You're right. I think it's good. In expect- I'm an enveloper. No, no, I'm saying it's a good thing. In, in expectation, <laughs> I don't think we're seeing it two times a year, yeah. but I think we're seeing it once every other year where some guy you've just never heard of wins the tournament. Okay. But 500 to 1
3: is and The reason low. why it matters is that we're forced, whenever a rare event happens, we're forced to reevaluate. Do we either say it's just the chance processes operating as they normally have and rare events just occur, or do we have a, a poor understanding of this particular player, and he's well, really better than he is. So, what do you think? How, well, here's you...
2: what they've said. So, the um, you know, the next major's coming up. Uh, I think it's the U.S. Open, or it could be the PGA, but I think it's the U.S. Open. Yeah, U.S. Open probably. What will be his odds for that? And they're like probably one in two hundred. Like they're not like they're not really budging on it. No, they're no. not budging on this guy. But and that's
3: because you should be able to look at a golfer and 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 have some sense of whether or not he's really a top golfer or not yeah
2: i either way, I don't think they're planning on budging, but either way, it was interesting that you know I just found it exciting that a five hundred to one guy won a golf tournament well, and
1: he won it going away he i think he set some kind of record scoring record with the t p c It is a big tournament i mean there's a there's a there was a lot to be said for what he did there. And, you know, I, what, I, what I don't know is what the competition looked like. You you'd like to see him taking down the best players. And I took a look at the tournament late, and it didn't look like the leaderboard well, the, was super exciting.
2: The leaderboard was not super exciting. The guy he was fighting against was uh, Ian Poulter, who barely has held on to his tour card, has some good moments in his career, never won a major. Um, Louis Oosthuizen, who does have one major, but that's the guys he was battling. He wasn't yeah. battling, you know, Spieth or Mickelson or McElroy or, you know, Jason Day. Those guys were in the tournament. But way way back in the tournament
1: well speaking of competitors they have to battle nadal just got an easier draw at the french right
2: well i mean uh roger federer has now said he's not playing the french and um i understand it i understand for a lot of purposes first of all clay is very demanding secondly federer has not played any of the clay warm-up tournaments and third um roger federer is smart nadal is back And so Nadal is destroying everybody on clay again. He's won the last three Masters 1000 tournaments. He's playing this week again in Rome. He's basically about to do the quadfecta, they call it, which is win every clay court tournament up until the French Open. I mean, Nadal hasn't lost on... The the,
1: the what, Eric?
2: It's the... The quadfecta? Yeah. You You know this? Yeah. Rome, Barcelona... Um, Monaco, and I forget which one the fourth one is, but he's won all of those. He hasn't, he's, no ha- now, only now play-
1: I would have thought he would always win all of those. I mean, the only Clay Court player we know is Nadal. He's dominated the game for 15 years or whatever. No, he, I'm wrong. He,
2: no, well, two of them he won. It's amazing. Two of them he just won for the 10th time this year. That's a lot of time, a lot of years to win a tournament. One of them for the fifth. But either way, Nadal just beat Djokovic on clay, handled him very, very easily, just beat him six two six four. 2 I think is also thinking, you know what, I could play the French, but the you odds wear of... wear
3: me-, me out, 35 years old. Right. right, and
2: the odds of me beating Nadal... Huh. You know, matter of fact, Nadal has... Sorry, Federer has one French Open title, but people forget, that's the year Robin Soderling beat Nadal, Nadal. in the second round. Fe- that's not who Federer beat l- at the French. Let's
3: quickly where we re- re- here. We always talk about the dominance of the old men... Because that's who they are, and we've never seen this historically. The Nadal, the Federer, the Djokovic, these guys are well into their 30s. Well,
2: Djokovic, sorry, just to be clear. Djokovic and Murray are 29, Nadal's 30, and Federer's 35.
3: So it's only Federer who is absurdly old. Absurdly old. Where are the young guys? It's one year later since we've talked seriously about tennis. Approximately, what's yeah, what's going on? Right. Who's well, 22 and
2: doing great? Well, there's no 22. Got a four, a there's, there's, four, no, that, there's no 22 so there's year old.
1: Dude with the bad attitude from Australia.
2: Yeah, Nick Kyrgios, and so Kyrgios, I think it's pronounced. <laughs> um, and so they're saying he's got a lot of potential. There's Nick Kyrgios. There's another guy who's got a shot at the French. Who's a very talented Austrian player, Dominic Thiem. He's now in the top 10 in the world, so he's up there. Um, and the not, Americans
3: are. Well, the
2: Ameri- <laughs> not a lot of great Americans. Side, yeah. certainly, well, certainly not at the French. I mean, you know, there's still Jack Sock would be one of the top Americans right now. You know, John Isner's getting long in the tooth. He's in his early 30s. Um, you know, there really aren't a lot of great up and coming
1: men Americans Remind me right who, now. The, the the name of the big guy who made a good run was it in the French that he came back from injury last year. Del Potro. Yeah, that was such a great story in 2016. And he
2: and he chose to not play the Australian to continue to rest. He's been playing the clay court tournaments. He just beat the number ten player in the world yesterday in a match. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's playing a good. He's playing another good player today. Del Patro's one of those guys. You you always hear these stories. Um, He's probably not going to win the tournament, but nobody wants to play him on any given day. I mean, he beat Djokovic. His best
1: best is as good as anybody's?
2: Oh, I would say his best is better better. than everybody, except I would say maybe two or three of. I would even put his best better than Rarinka on his best. I would say Del Patro's best is probably as good as. Except eliminate Djokovic. Murray, and Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. He might be better than the rest of them on his best day. And he's beaten them all.
1: All right. On the the women's side, the news this week has been that the French declined a wild card invitation to Sharapova. Was that surprising? I mean, I would think – I mean, I'm so cynical about the world. I think people do things for political and commercial reasons all the time. Why would they not give her a wild card?
2: Well, she was coming back from a doping ban – and they determined that that's not the kind of thing you give somebody. So she fell out of the rankings. Since so it's a 52-week that ranking. That
1: is awfully high-minded for professional sports. I mean, plus if, she's, if you been, think about she's the, already been playing. Look, look at she, the circumstances she her the band. Her she doping ban. I she served
2: the ban. Wait, wait, She served the ban, but the way she got into the tournaments that she got into were through wild-card entries. Her ranking is not high enough well, to justify ex- did, getting
1: into those tournaments. But because she played. That's because they wouldn't let her play. No, exactly. I understand So you that. have to adjust the and entry look at rules. The, the context her. of
3: her banning him. I mean she was using a drug that w- was was legal for years and all of a sudden they well, switched we don't, we
1: don't know we you no, no the drug was I, I for know years. but we don't know what she says she didn't know no, right. no, he's just referring to the fact that the saying, year really before
2: that she was banned for taking this, I get okay, melatonin, that was legal. Okay. That drug was legal for Wait. 10 years on tour. And then they changed the rules, and she said she didn't know that it, the rules were changed, I mean, that, but that, it was legal. It was a legal drug to take for 10 years that yeah. she took it.
1: So you're saying it can't be that bad. Or can't yeah. can't be that
2: big a deal. I
3: mean, if they if I mean, right. known about it for years, it's not a new thing. And then if someone changes their mind and says, you know, what? I think we should ban this and then all of a sudden this person becomes like I, I don't
1: I don't want to argue too much against high-mindedness and morality and sports and all that. Mostly, I'm just reaction with surprise that they would do this. It's an, it seems an unusual and maybe it not a, from a marketing perspective and these secondary sports need to market well. Really? I mean, she's one of the only brand names in tennis. Well,
2: well she's also And she served her band. including to the fact that Serena Williams is you know, pregnant and not playing. So now you've taken you no. Know, there's the biggest name in women's tennis is not playing right now. You could argue from a popularity point of view, Sharapova is the second biggest Absolutely. name in women's tennis. So now she's not going to be playing the French Open.
1: So I, I don't like the fact that this th- is if, the French you're talking about. Yes,
3: they're not known for doing things that are economically wise.
1: <laughs> hey, we're not taking shots at countries on this show. Come on, I'm just. Inferring from previous data, either way they were
2: the the claim was it was about out of principle she has to earn her way back into the tournament so they decided the, the, not as to as give long her.
1: as they knew when they gave her the ban that the effective consequence was going to be longer than the actual ban because of rules like this fine but if they meant okay we're going to punish her for a year and then she's going to be back to normal then they chose wrong and they shouldn't have these. Well, kind that's of,
3: uh, Pete Rose's argument about reinstatement. Or eligibility for the Hall of Fame because apparently that wasn't well.
2: As we've talked about this earlier this year, I found was out banned, an amazing stat. Yeah. St- I, I had
3: never of all the years that it's well, been. Fill us in on the issue. Go on. Well, again, so
2: everybody knows. I mean, Pete Rose signed an agreement with Bart Giamatti, who was then Commissioner of Baseball, that said uh, he agreed to be banned from baseball. But when Pete Rose signed the agreement, just to be clear, I just found this out like three months ago. Being banned from baseball did not make you ineligible for the Hall of Fame. Mm. It was only about six months to a year later where they changed the rules where if you were banned from baseball, Pete Rose, maybe appropriately so, maybe it's revisionist history, says, I never would have signed that document or I would have made it explicit in the document that I agree to be banned from baseball, but you're not banning me from the Hall of Fame. What
1: did the signing the document get him? Because yeah, you don't sign anything it ex- without getting something in exchange. For what? Yeah. do you know what well, it
2: was? It, I, I think not being—I guess not being prosecuted. I guess he was not going to I don't know that. They were going to
3: criminally prosecute him? Well, well there's an issue. You can't bet, I mean, there is an issue in gambling laws if you're betting on your own team. But it's not up to the Major League Baseball whether he gets prosecuted under criminal statute. Not at all. But they could I don't know, maybe they could something. have maybe they yeah. could
2: have fined him or they could have, you know, uh, taken person cuz he was managing at the time, you know, they could have said, "Look, give us our money back cuz you, you know, we're not going to prosecute you under the rules of baseball," meaning Huh. But you're right. They had to give him something, something to they allow him to be
3: signed. A, right? There's there always, two-sided. He, it always a two-sided. When he says he wouldn't have signed, meant, meaning he wouldn't have taken what was offered. So what was he offered?
1: See, by the way, in baseball rules changes, this uh, there's been a lot of whinging this week about the slide rule again, and this uh, got, got a lot right. of attention last year. I think last year was the first year for it, but now the Cubs lost a game apparently because of this, and so you know one coach goes off, and the Cards coach defends, and, and what do you guys what do you guys make of it? I didn't like the slide rule change, but you know I'm a but traditionalist. You, an unbelievable traditionalist. Um, do you go to night games, or do you just protest them? And- <laughs> <laughs> no, how old do you think I am? <laughs> there have been lights, lights in stadiums you know, lights. For, for
3: 75 years or well, more. They, they, didn't put them in,
1: they didn't put them in Wrigley, for <laughs> they example. They did. Until. That's
3: true. But I'm not from Chicago. Um, no, I do go to night games. <laughs> <laughs> I just get bothered by rules that have such a
2: large subjective component to them. And so, you know, is the guy blocking the plate? Is he not? You know, those are the kinds of things that bother me. And so there's too much discretion. I'm not into rules that have a massive amount of discretion in them. Mm-hmm. Those just bother me.
1: Mm-hmm. So the, the Cardinals manager's take was, look, this is the only sport that the players play every day. And what we have to do is keep our guys able to play every day. That's a huge part of the game. And so here's a way that we think is going to help with that.
3: I mean, well, yeah. Come on. I mean, it's, this, this comes up... What is it? Once every three months, or uh, there's you an take, issue. You do take. I mean, this is do. not gonna.
1: This is changing behavior at an imperceptible level. No, except for the ex- no, no. We, except for there are occasions where you knock guys out for the season. I mean, that, it happens. That has happened, it, 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 yes. But it we ha- can just study it, it right? It reliably happens. happens I mean, every year.
2: You know, you can study it the same way they said when they changed the driving age from 18 to 21, etc. You can. We can study the effects of injuries of this. You agree with that?
3: Yeah, let, let it run. Mean the, you mean the drinking age from 18 to 21?
2: No, the slide rule. Oh, the
3: slide rule. No, I'm trying to give, you, it, a, give it a few could years. Could you study it? You would need a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: A lot of time. I got time. (laughs) You got time. Particularly don't seem to be obeying it. Speaking of time, that is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Daniel Bruno, sound engineer, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour into the last quarter of the show. We do four quarters here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. Shane is out this week. You can join the conversation, one 844 That's one 942 7866 We do two hours. We usually have guests in the middle hour and open lines now, but... We made a special exception for our next guest. We would like to welcome to the show Mr. Luke Bourne, Professor Luke Bourne, Dr. Luke Bourne. Welcome, Luke. Glad to have you.
4: Thanks. Glad to be on.
1: Luke is Vice President of Strategy and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings. This is a recent move for him. Before that, he worked with AS Roma, the soccer team over in Italy. And we know him because he has been bouncing around between UBC, University of British Columbia, where he got his Ph.D. and Harvard, and he was one of the guys early into spatial analytics and data visualization that really kind of set the standard for how we think about spatial analytics in basketball. So Luke was one of our early guests on this show. He may not even remember talking to all of us back. You know, we're barely any good now, but we were really a little rough early on. (laughs) So Luke, we're glad you're willing to come back. And join I
4: think us. on that interview, I'm pretty sure I was still at Harvard, so it was much more friendly time-wise as well. Okay, yeah, so, right. I was on the West Coast. I was about
1: to ask, you're probably calling in from Sacramento, and we're always gravely sympathetic with those who do that and, and, and appreciative. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, you know, you guys, uh, let's start with what's, what's live for you guys. It must have been an interesting night. How did the King's staff consume the lottery last night? What was that like?
4: Oh, I think everyone's really excited. It's a it's a deep draft, you know, with number five and number ten, a real opportunity to make the team better. I uh, I retweeted a, a picture yesterday. I think it was the ticketing staff at the Kings and you could just see the excitement. People are uh people are definitely excited for the future in Sacramento.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did uh you know the, how did the how did the you feel that the balls broke for the Kings last night?
4: Literally, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, it it worked out uh it worked out really well. I have a bunch of friends, uh actually former students, um I think who would you guys have even had on the show, um, at some point that, that work with the 76ers. so
3: Yes, we know them.
4: Mm-hmm. Um I know I know they were very happy, but I think we were even happier to move up from eight to five and uh mm-hmm. you know, two picks in the top ten is uh in in this deep of a draft. It's a pretty good place to be. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, can you tell us about your decision to to move to the kings we, we, I'd like to hear more history really and get the arc again of what you've done but the, but you've only done this recently so you've just made this decision and uh, and how does it fit with your with your academic work? Are you going to leave academia full altogether um, but it involved a, a decision to move from soccer back to basketball yeah,
4: so I've been in soccer for the last Year or so, you know, I started in basketball. Uh, That's what my work is, and that's sort of, I guess, what I'm most known for. But uh, spent the last year in soccer, learned a ton, had a really great experience working with the people at AS Roma. Um, Some really, really quality people there, Um, doing really great work, both on the sort of player recruitment side as well as on the sports science, um, health, and fitness kind of stuff as well. So I've been doing that for about a year, and, uh, and then the opportunity, I actually wasn't, definitely wasn't looking to make a change, and then I'll, you know, got a Call out of the blue to some people of kings, and and uh, you know a few visits and a few conversations later, just seeing how um, how that organization looks and the 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 front office that they had in place with uh, uh, Vladi and, and Scott Perry and Ken Catnella and Mike Bratz and Peter Stoyakovich. those really good people, really forward looking, um, really wanting to adopt, uh, wanting to sort of make more of a push in making their decision-making more objective and more data-focused. And um, that's something that I was able to, you know, I mean, I, I'm definitely, that's my thing. And so uh, with them combined with uh, the owner, who also was sort of very keen to be a leader in the area of, uh, and, you know, using data and then using, trying to make objective uh, decisions in, in, in the front office, um, a lot of sort of very, very positive, very uh, team-focused, Stuff happening there, so that just sort of got me really excited, and talked to my wife and said, "Hey, do you want to move again?" And and so (laughs) she was uh, she was game, and we really like Sacramento. We love the people there so far, so so we're excited.
1: All right, so tell us what it means to take your work inside an organization, and you know, we're we're kind of grappling with what 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 we expect out of spatial analytics. It is clearly where basketball is going and and similar sports so soccer and hockey in particular but people aren't necessarily adept at working with those kinds of numbers or processing those kinds of numbers and when we think of spatial analytics right now we think of really cool data visualization so what does it what does it mean to be a specialist in that one of the one of the one of the real pioneers in that and then to take it inside an organization how are you working with it inside an organization
4: it's a good question. I think when you first start with an organization, you're probably not like we're not starting immediately with with tracking data with with the spatial data, and the reason for that is that there's there's so much sort of basic low hanging fruit in play by play and box score data that you need to get up and running with first. And there's a lot um, there's a lot more reward for the effort with with box score and play by play data, um, basic summary statistics, sort of simple metrics like adjusted plus minus and, and, and those kinds of things which can come from play-by-play data. The spatial data is sort of um, um, is really important, but it's a lot of work to extract information from. So that's kind of, you know, not, it's a little bit harder. It's sort of something that comes probably a few months down the line. Mm-hmm. But I should say it's not something to be ignored. I think a lot of teams now are realizing that that there's a lot you can get from the spatial data that you can't get from play-by-play data.
1: So. Well, Luke, I was about to ask you that. So we we can imagine that it's a good long-term play, but it was born in academia, and I, I suspect most of the work is still going in academia. What's your sense of how how common it is for an NBA team to actually be working with their own spatial analytics?
4: Uh, that's a good question. There's, I think most teams at this point are relying on external providers to provide them with their insights, whether it's a consultant or second spectrum or one of the other companies that's, um sort of crunching the raw sport data um but i think there is also a handful of teams that that's doing it themselves from scratch as well because i think there really is a lot of things that don't appear in the play-by-play
1: great well can can you exactly can you tell us about that there's there's very few people in the world that would be better geared up to tell us what do you think you can extract from spatial from tracking data that you can't get from more traditional even even cutting edge but using traditional measures
4: yeah, so you know, anyone who watches basketball closely, um, and this, actually this applies to soccer as well, will know that a lot of what happens on the court isn't on ball. In other words, it's not, it's not necessarily what's happening with the guy who's holding the ball. Mm-hmm. And so we care a lot about, um, if you think about what's being captured by the box score or, or play-by-play, it's the guy who makes the basket or misses the basket, maybe the guy who makes the pass that le- the, the assist. Um, and then rebounds and steals and a few other sort of basic things. But it's not capturing the guy who sets a really solid screen or really uh, um, create move, could have some sort of movement pattern to create a lot of space. The guy who's sort of getting the hockey assist, sort of, you know, two, two passes back. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things happening on the court which are not, which don't appear in the play-by-play. Um, you know, it's mostly to do with movement and spacing. Right. Um, look that's how, where how, the spatial data comes
1: in. As an analyst, how do you even decide what to code there? So like in hockey, it makes sense, the guy who passed to the guy who made the pass. But in like setting a pick, you're going you're gonna to code. This is remarkable that you're going to take these tracking data and you're going to code for good picks, essentially. Is that right? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And and the way you can do that is to look at um, um, the the sort of – a good pick is not necessarily about what you do. It's about what the offense is able to do as a result of what you do. So saying whether a pick is good or not or a screen is good is not, is not necessarily, you know, in the data where we see this point moving. You know, we can't say whether he's a flat shot or what type of pick set, or, but we can say um, the guy he set the screen on wasn't able to get around him or that led to an open shot, you know, that kind of thing.
1: So, uh, you know, you mentioned in the more traditional measures, adjusted plus minus. So this builds on the traditional hockey measure, and it seems like a real nice improvement over some of the simpler things that came before it. But it seems like the spatial stuff is going to allow you to go deeper than that, right? So, one, it will help you explain plus minus or adjusted Mm -hmm. plus minus. But are there already – do you already have enough insight using these tools to say – like use them in the free this year's free agent market. I mean, are are the, are the decisions that Vlade and Ken and Scott are going to be making? Are, are those going to be informed by by you saying, you know, it's not in the data yet, but we're seeing in the spatial analytics that this player seems to be making a contribution on the court?
4: Yeah, I think I think ultimately they're informed by a lot of different information, and and that's part of it. Um, so we we wrote a paper for Sloan, the Sloan Conference, a few years back, looking at defense, and if you think about defense what's actually being picked up in in the play-by-player box score data there's very very little so you're just seeing um, steals and defensive rebounds and blocks that's pretty much it Um, and so if you think about what plus minus is doing or adjusted plus minus it's sort of getting a really coarse representation of a player's defensive or offensive uh, contribution on the court so it'll say you know when this guy's on we expect he adds you know half a half a point per 100 possessions or something like that. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the tracking data, then, then you can do things like, say, so we built models which allow you to say, okay, this, this player has been has been guarding this offensive player. And when he's guarding him at the perimeter, he doesn't take shots. So with the tracking data, you can do things really concretely and say, like, Kawhi Leonard prevents um, opponents from shooting. Mm-hmm. So when, when he's guarding a guy at the perimeter, they, they, they're like 20 or 30% less likely to shoot And even when they do get shots off in the perimeter, those shots are worse than they are typically. And those are things that you can really, that you can, and you can look at a defensive analogy of a shot chart. So you can say, where is a guy allowing shots from? And where is a guy, even if a shot's going off, where is he sort of, is he making them better shots or worse shots?
3: So, Luke, this is, this is Adi Weiner. I'm really interested in, in this. This is a defensive angle. Um, is, is This just seems to me where the in the analogy with baseball is actually apropos. We've been studying f- offense for years in baseball and haven't got it down precisely. On the defensive side, things are really kind of still kind of weak and probably the same as basketball. On the offensive side, it's very, very, I mean, there's obviously it's much harder in basketball than baseball because of the... the the interactions with the players, but we know more about offense. But as a more casual observer of of basketball, I feel like defense is just is nothing that that you can really grab onto. And is that where the 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 spatial is really going to make the 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 difference? And the teams that aren't using it are going to be behind.
4: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely where people see uh, the, the 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 sort of initial benefit in tracking data. And that's largely because on offense, it's just so easy to track or to, to measure and count of the basics of offense, who scored the points, who put up the assist, who got the rebound. On defense, defense is really, the good defense is about preventing things from appearing in the box score. If you're guarding a guy all night and he doesn't show up in the box score, you've done a really good job. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you need sort of more fine-grained information to say um, um, how, how good of a defender you are and, 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 In which situations are you a good defender? So which guys are good defenders off the screen? Which guys are good defenders in the perimeter, which guys are preventing shots in the paint, Mm -hmm. and the tracking data allows you to do that.
1: Mm -hmm. We're talking to Luke Bourne, VP of Strategy and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings. This is Wharton Moneyball, of course. Luke recently moved to the Kings after working with AS Roma, the soccer club, and being one of the real pioneers in spatial analytics. So, Luke, this is Eric Bradlow. I want to ask you a quick question. I can imagine trying to, you mentioned
2: uh, the Sacramento Kings did very well last night, have number 5 and 10 in the upcoming draft. Um, without giving away any secret sauce, I'm not asking you about that. I could imagine building a model to predict college player performance in the NBA using three basic philosophies. One would be we're going to outdata somebody else, meaning we're going to have data they don't have. The second could be we're going to build better models than they have. The third can be we're going to optimally combine data and let's call them old-time expertise. Which of the three of those, if any, do you think is the future of analytics in basketball and or which ones do you think the sacramento kings will try to get really good at is it the data is it the models or is it if you like the bayesian combination of data and expertise yeah
4: i think i think ultimately we do everything we can to try and make the team better so um that's using all all information whether it's data and models uh, expert opinion um sort of the the typical interview you know interviews workouts uh, body composition measurements, the whole gamut—you know, anything that we can do to understand these players and uh, allow us to to understand them and potentially predict their NBA performance—is something that we're going to look at and uh, and to hopefully get the right guys.
2: So, are you using machine learning methods with just like a large number of variables? Is this going to be a you know a moderate size n big p problem as we mm-hmm. call it? You know, there'll be you know hundreds of players, but it could be. Maybe a thousand variables one could look at.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this is tricky.
4: The first thing is to, to realize is that there's a lot of randomness. So when people talk about a draft and they say, oh, you know, Oda, Greg Oden is so much better than Kawhi Leonard or sorry, uh, uh, Kevin Durant, for instance, right? That that was sort of a narrative. And you look back and you realize that there's just so much variability in 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 players' career trajectories. And so. Um, when you look at, for instance, the performance of a, a the, the typical performance of the first round pick versus, or sorry, first pick versus the second pick, third, and so on. If you, if if I gave you sort of the list of uh, number three picks, and I gave you the list of number five picks, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me which is which. Um, that so it's it's there is a lot of variability. So your um, any model which you build is going to be sort of influenced by that variability. You know you have you have number one picks and number two picks and number three picks. That completely bust. And similarly, you have number 59 picks. I was within 57. Ginobili was either 57 or 59. I can't remember off the top of my head. But you also have sort of really late picks that perform really, really well. So that makes modeling a challenge. And uh, um, But my philosophy in terms of what you're saying about small and big P is really about um, um, trying to make models which aren't just um, predicting well, but are predicting well, but simultaneously are interpretable. So you have models which you can say um, okay, this is predicting that you know player X is going to be really great. Well, can we understand why it's saying that? So if you use mm-hmm. deep learning or some sort of kernel method or something, you're going to end up in a situation where the model just says this player is good, and maybe maybe you can say with some kernel methods that it says he's good because he has similar stats as some other players or similar body composition as some other uh, previous players. But there's there's you know other types of methods will actually allow you to say it says this guy's going to be good because he's similar to this player and this player and this player, and also he has um, a really big wingspan and he uh, scored a lot of points and got a lot of rebounds or whatever it might be.
2: Yeah, so Luke, let me ask you a question, which is, again, this is Eric Bravo, based on your randomness comment from before. And I'm not asking you to talk about any hypothetical trades that the Kings might make, etc., but is there a similar scoring chart for first, second, third, fourth, fifth, etc., in the NBA, similar to what there is in the NFL? Or another way to view it is, you know, the Sixers had a reasonable night last night in the draft. Obviously, we swapped with you, but we ended up with number three. Look, if you went to most GMs and say you could have number three or number five and ten, is there like a chart they could look at and say i'd rather have five or ten because variability might say you'd rather have two coin flips in the top ten than one coin flip in the top ten even if one is three and the other is five and ten so how does the industry think and look at that
4: yeah there's definitely some some publicly available research out there on that um i think most teams are doing these kind of things internally you know you just you want to understand um uh, what the relative value is and um you know because again teams do sort of look to move up they look to move down and you need to be able to say whether that's a good idea or a bad idea so um i think i think if you look at the the publicly available work for instance by uh, michael lopez you the, the nba is actually one of the uh, if, if you could like as, as a contest if you look at the nfl it's really flat the difference between the first pick and the and the 30th pick isn't a lot whereas in the nba it's quite a lot but right. the, this is available um Guys like Aaron and, uh, um who used to be at uh, the 76ers, and uh, Michael Lopez, for instance, have done some nice work in that area.
3: But is it a lot because one and two are so much higher and it drops down to be, become pretty flat pretty quickly, or is it a lot because it is more sloped, more consistent?
4: It, it, tends, it tends to. One of the things is that in basketball, you do have the sort of superstars who are known to be superstars right off the top. So the, the LeBrons of the world. Um, but definitely it, it's pretty steep in the beginning and then um, and then tends to flatten out. So if you look at their, their, their um, like Mike's data for instance, you see that moving from 8 to 5, we have something like a 10 or 15 percent chance less of, of a player busting in that range. Now does that apply this year? Well there's a lot, this is not a typical draft, people it's, it's, tend to think it's better. So that's it's really it's actually quite complicated because when you actually think what these what results are doing, it's saying on average um, what's the difference between a five or an eight or a three and a five or whatever it might be. But when you're looking at a particular draft, you know you're actually looking at players, and so uh, you, you're able to use all the information that you see on those players to say. Um, you know, when we moved from eight to five is how much of a difference that is. Mm-hmm. And I think you have a lot more than just looking at historical precedent.
1: Mm-hmm. Luke, we're down to just a couple of minutes. I'm talking to you. A couple of things strike me. One, you're moving from basketball to soccer and now back to basketball. It's tough in many worlds to change domains like that and to have the credibility and be able to work with different people and different stats and different players also you're known for spatial analytics that's your specialty but you're talking about player recruitment you're talking about sports science Mm -hmm. so you're you've got this latitude that must come from um, ability but also disposition can you give some advice to statisticians and analysts who find themselves having to work across domains work in a new specialization work with a new field how is it that you've been able to do this what tips do you have for others
4: yeah, I think one big thing is that a, a lot of um, statisticians, when they go into an organization, tend to go in with a lot of their own ideas and their own agenda. And I'm very, I approach things very differently. I tend to think more so along the lines of um, going to the people that are there and saying, how can I help you do your job better? How can I help you make your decisions more objectively? And then that creates an open dialogue of, oh, you know, I really wish that we could see what the training loads have been or understand whether the training loads mm-hmm. are high or low or understand who's creating space in this situation when we're counterattacking in this particular formation. And, um, so then when pe- people start talking their language and then I've uh, been fairly, you know, I've had a good good luck at, uh, at converting some of those sort of sports um, information in- into quantitative information. And so I very much view mm. it as a, as a chance to, um, instead of going in and saying, you know, here's who to draft, here's how to think about player fatigue, here's how to um, hear the best players in trade and see, it's sort of going in and saying, hey, what do you, what do you care about
1: mm-hmm.
4: and how can, we, how can we help make those decisions more objectively?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great, Luke. And, we, and we, Matt's going to kill me for asking another question, but I have to ask, what's one thing you learned from soccer you think is going to make you a better analyst in basketball?
4: A oh, good question. I think the the biggest thing I learned is is well I learned a lot about uh about communicating information. You can imagine when you're there and sort of traditional Italian culture, uh, speaking Italian, etc. Um your communication skills have to really be on point. And so <laughs> yeah. I got really good at communicating information visually. I think my you know, I used to I've I've always been into data visualization as anyone who's sort of seen my work knows, but it I think it really took it to the next level as he Right you know you you can't you can't rely on language to communicate that's amazing so, that's
1: amazing because, yeah we should all do your... internships in a in a foreign country that's fantastic <laughs> listen look we have to hop but we really appreciate your taking the time especially this early in the morning west coast time
4: no problem thanks guys
1: that was Luke Bourne VP of Strategy and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings recently ended that position after working with AC Roma in soccer and bouncing back and forth between UBC and Harvard, holding down some academic jobs and helping create the field of space analytics. Very That has been another show, another two hours of live sports analytics. We're going to come back and do it in a couple of weeks. Until then, thanks to Daniel Bruno, Matt Johnson, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, our long-lost collaborator Shane Jensen. Come back and join us next time.